Good morning. I begin every class with all right, so I'm trying to do something different. Good morning. Okay, great. Uh, We continue today our course on the leaven of liturgy. It's a study of the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, Order for Holy Communion, which requires a lot of introduction. So today is going to be the sort of second stage of introduction to liturgy, since the very first Book of Common Prayer was in 1549, and there were centuries and centuries and centuries of liturgy leading up to that. You can't just start in 1549. So we're going to get a little bit more of the, the sort of swath of history and, and liturgical development leading up to 1549. And, uh, and following, we will get to the very, the very tippy top of the, of the liturgy today um, it, itself in the, in the Book of Common Prayer. But uh, I, I was commenting to the, to the first uh, service this morning during the announcements that I, was, I wasn't entirely sure that I should call this course the leaven of liturgy because leaven in the Old Testament and in, oftentimes in the New Testament is referred to negatively except for, as I explained last week, Jesus' parable of the leaven, which is my real point. Uh, until this week when the bishop preached a sermon and said, we are the leaven. And I thought, yes, <laughs> I did choose the right title for this course. Great. The leaven of liturgy will begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. See, I said all right. Ah. Anyhow, we've got, to, we've got to go back in time here a little bit before we really uh, determine what we want to say about the Book of Common Prayer. Because the Book of Common Prayer, although it's pretty great, does not just simply descend from the skies in its format. In fact, there are centuries and centuries and centuries of liturgy in the Christian church before that. And there is a, a significant... Uh, breaking point or turning point in the Christian church, as, as you may know, that happened in the early 4th century when the Emperor Constantine became a Christian. When the Emperor became a Christian, the uh, persecution of the Christian faith was no more. The Edict of Milan uh, came down in 311, which was an edict of toleration of other religions, whereas the worst and most pervasive and prolonged systematic persecution of the Christian faith had just occurred under the Emperor Diocletian, uh, uh, the, the persecution under which St. George became a martyr in 303. In 311, it became, uh, 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 first of all, a legal religion, and then in much later in that particular century, uh, that one of the next emperors tried something they should never try, which is to make the Christian faith mandatory, not only uh, legal, but mandatory. Never, never do that. (laughs) It's a bad idea. That was in 380. But here we are in the fourth century. But before Constantine came along, there had already been, of course, liturgical developments and some source, some sense of solidifying of the liturgy. One of the earliest witnesses to the first 
century liturgy is an early second century or late first century sort of liturgical manual, which uh, we've called the Didache. That is somewhat vague, but it, it is a witness to what worship was like in the first century. The problem with the Didache is it's, it's like a book of rubrics rather than the book of the liturgy itself. But it's a little window. I talked to you last uh, week a little bit about Pliny the Younger, the sort of Roman spy who went and saw the, the Christian church and discovered what their worship was like, determining that they weren't actually a threat to the Roman Empire. Uh, that was another first century witness. We have epistles from different uh, sub-apostolic uh, figures, Clement of Rome, St. Polycarp, and others have written letters to each other that are still uh, in existence, but it's still not liturgy. It's just little glimpses of what the early church was like, the first century church. By the second century, Justin Martyr wrote an apology uh, to the Roman government, not apologizing, but a defense of, the, of, of Christian belief and even of liturgy. Uh, and that is another sort of window in uh, probably the most interesting element, or one of the most interesting elements of Justin Martyr, his little description of how the, the, the services would typically go is that they would read from the memoirs of the apostles as long as they had time. Could you imagine if we read, you know, someone got up to read the epistle and they read for as long as they had time. Oh, man. Who decides how much time we have today? If the person, you know, I always say a microphone is like a beer and a half because everything's funnier and everything's more interesting when you're when you have a microphone in your hand. And so when people get up to speak, as I am now, you could imagine they would go on and on. Someone in the back is saying, wrap it up, wrap it up. The early church, I have a feeling there was someone in the back row saying, wrap it up, that's enough. Uh, but that's uh, Justin Martyr speaks about the, in the second century what worship was like in defense of the Christian faith to the, the, the government, really. Hippolytus of Rome in the third century gives another uh, more full picture of what liturgy was like with some actual elements of liturgy uh, that can still be discovered or can be read. Uh, they, sometimes it's called the apostolic tradition or the anaphora of Hippolytus. One of the, the, the key elements of this third century document is you'll find the Sursum Corda. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. That prayer, if it's recorded by Hippolytus, means it was said long before that. So when we get to that portion of our liturgy, if you're wondering where in the world do we get these words from, well... We get them from the earliest liturgies in the history of the church. So you can, you can sense the connection to what we call the church militants. In other words, uh, not the church militant, the church expectant. Those who have already uh, died in Christ, uh, we participate even in their liturgy uh, as we pray together. After Constantine, uh, the church has the freedom to sort of uh, crystallize some of these liturgies, and you start to see that. Um, whereas before Constantine, the, uh, the records are a little bit sparse. After Constantine, a Gallican rite and a Roman rite develop. You can imagine the Roman rite develops around Rome, and the Gallican rite develops, I think I've got the countries here, 
Gaul, Northern Italy, Spain, Celtic churches, churchy churches, supposed to be. Um, and there were essentially varieties locally developed, you can imagine, without the internet, without you know, a mail system. Uh, local rites would develop, which were roughly based on the same structure, but not, not uh, unified until several centuries later. We have in the possession of our libraries and scholars, and mostly in the, in the Vatican, uh, items referencing, or not referencing, but items showing another a- aspect of what services were like under the post-Constantine era. The Leonine Sacramentary uh, under Pope Leo I. Uh, some scholars will say that this was generously attributed to Leo I and probably a few centuries later. Modern scholars are always trying to date everything centuries afterwards, and you can determine your own uh, sense of why they're motivated to do that. But nevertheless, it was given the name the Leonine Sacramentary from the 400s. Uh, some of the collects that we use are from the Leonine Sacramentary, uh, which I would say was from the 400s, but others would say five and 600s. The Galatian Sacramentary, once again, generously named after St. Galatius. Uh, begins to, we begin to see references to that in the 600s. And Pope Gregory I, the Gregorian Sacramentary in late 600s, his, uh, we, have a, we have a question in the Board of Examining Chaplains, uh, discuss the rise of the papacy, the rise of the, the influence of the papacy. And oftentimes they, start, they stop at Leo. And we say, you can't stop at Leo. You've got to keep going because Gregory the Great it was getting bigger. And by the, the second millennium, the, the papacy was reaching a real zenith. But here we are, uh, speaking of Pope Gregory, and one of the main things he did, you, of course you're familiar with Gregorian chant, which is one sort of uh, sign of his effort to unify uh, this liturgy. Let's get all the monks chanting the same thing. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, he also tried to solidify that Roman rite so that it wasn't so much a bunch of local expressions, but uh, one rite that could be sent out into the world. Uh, and his effort really came to fruition a, f- uh, a couple centuries later under Charlemagne when the liturgies were really uh, more unified in the Roman church after, after his influence. But that, that's... That sort of spread, that unification of liturgy, still allowed for local, local rites, local developments. And by Thomas Cranmer's time, you can see how we're skipping through the centuries here. We're in the 16th century now. In 16th century England, Thomas Cranmer had many sources at his disposal for an English liturgy. The original uh, effort to unify the church under a Latin liturgy was just that so that we'll all be saying the same thing and understanding the same thing. But what was discovered by, by the late Middle Ages is that no one was understanding anything. Why can't we have a liturgy in our own language and the scriptures in our own language? William Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the, the scriptures into English. And I think it was 10 years later, uh, the same, I think it was King Henry VIII who burned him at the stake, uh, King Henry VIII then allowed for the publishing of an English translation. <laughs> so, 
Uh, you can see uh, during the 16th century, things are changing and changing quick. But Thomas Cranmer had many sources at his disposal when he compiled the Book of Common Prayer. He had the Roman Rite, especially in the Sarum Missal used in Salisbury. This is a, a, essentially one of the, the, the key English liturgies. There were other English liturgies at the time. Uh, by, by English, I mean the country of England. It was still in Latin. But the Sarum Missal uh, was one of the main sources for the Book of Common Prayer. But he also had at his disposal the Liturgy of St. Basil from the East, the Liturgy of St. Chrysostom from the East, from Spain, the Spanish Mozarabic Rite. I've never heard that word before, but uh, parts of the Book of Common Prayer uh, are, are drawn from, from that. Also, this is a Lutheran source. It's called the Consultation of Archbishop Herman of Cologne, another liturgy that had developed in the 16th century. Of course, by the time Thomas Cranmer is putting this together, Luther's been on the scene for 30 years or, or something to that effect. Um, the, the, the theses are nailed on the door in the teens of the 16th century, and the Book of Common Prayer comes out in the 40s of the 15th century. So there's already been a lot of development in continental Europe by that time. So he's putting this together, uh, and he would also compose some new elements. Some of the colleagues that we pray were not composed uh, for the Leonine, Galatian, or uh, Gregorian sacramentaries, but they were, they were written by 16th century English clergymen, including Thomas Cranmer and others. But this is not... Uh, they're not rubbing sticks together for fire anymore. He's got several sources. Uh, when he was asked to tour Europe uh, in, to, to seek favor from the seminaries for the annulment of Henry VIII's marriage, he um, was able to encounter what was going on in the seminaries all around Europe. And when he came back to Europe, or came back to England, he said, whoa, there's something going on in Europe and we need to get on board with this or we need to figure out what our position is. And some of that element uh, uh, really made its way into the first Book of Common Prayer, 1549, the right, right. This is English, okay? 1549, Book of Common Prayer, uh, and no good deed goes unpunished. Cranmer's 1549 English Book of Common Prayer was decried as too similar to the Latin Rite by the Reformers. Uh, and, and just as a note, it was also considered too Protestant by the Catholics in England. So it was too Catholic and too Protestant at the same time. It just depended on who you asked. And that's the problem with Anglicanism, isn't it? <laughs> Are you Catholic? Yes. Are you Protestant? Yes. You're too Catholic. Yes, you're too Protestant. Yeah. <laughs> just depends on which way you're, you, you tilt your head. Uh, you, maybe you remember my uh, article from a few months ago about a distinctive of Anglicanism is that we exist at the wound site, right there at the wound site, and it's more comfortable to flee to the extreme of one side or the other, but there we are, right at the ow spot between Catholicism and Protestantism, even between East and West, it can be frustrating or even painful 
uh, I think the, em- the emergence of the first Book of Common Prayer and the pain that it caused is sort of uh, uh, a sign for the future of Anglicanism. But by 1552, the pressure of the Continental Reformers was, was very great, and much of the Protestant wish list was granted in the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Successive revisions tend always to put things back that were removed from 1549. Successive revisions are always trying to get back to the initial uh, 1549 Book of Common Prayer. We'll hear more about that in just a moment. But uh, any, any questions or comments so far about what we're talking about? Because we're going to answer this question. You noticed in our liturgy how if you're just following the prayer book from page to page, you're going to ask this question, where does all of this extra stuff come from? Because Father Paul and others, uh, at, this, at this church at one point we use the introit, we may return to that, Something is said after the colic for purity. The choir sings it, or the priest sings it, or remember Bill Schneider used to sing the introit. Um, uh, in some of our churches, we use what's called the orate fratres, pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable. I think Father Suter is familiar with that, I'm sure. Um, some, of, some of the rest of you are. Uh, there is no instruction that I can recall in the rubrics of the Book of Common Prayer for an elevation or a bell ringing. Uh, There's no instruction for incense, how to sense the altar in the prayer book. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God, Eche Agnes Dei is not in the prayer book, I'm pretty sure. Um, A priest shouldn't say I'm pretty sure. But nevertheless, the centurion's prayer, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only in my soul. Should you're flipping through your prayer book trying to find that, it's not in there. Uh, some churches you go to, the Gloria and Excelsis is at the front of the service. That's not in the prayer book. Uh, Depart in peace, love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, that's, you know, the, the, the order in which all this goes in some churches. The priest, you'll notice when Bishop Grinder, or Bishop Chad comes, he says, depart in peace, thanks be to God, from the front of the church rather than the back of the church. Where does all this stuff come from? The Missal. Ready? Traditional Anglicans typically allow for the use of the American Missal or the Anglican Missal. Anglican truly meaning English uh, Missal. As supplementary to the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. Truly, the Missal contains the entire Book of Common Prayer. So it's possible to use the big Missal on the altar and only hear what you can read in the Book of Common Prayer. But it also, some have described it as the Book of Common Prayer on steroids. It also has many, many other uh, prayers and gives the, gives the priest, the bishop, the deacon the freedom to expand if they desire. Missals typically used in Anglican churches emerged after the 19th century when much of Anglican clergy were continuing, see that trend? Continuing to bring back anything that had been lost in the prayer book simplification process. So something, you know, one of Thomas Cranmer's instincts was to make the, the, the liturgy understandable to the person who just sort of walks in. Uh, first of all, we're going to put it in English. Second of all, we're going to remove it from the liturgical and religious experts 
and let you have a role. You're going you're gonna to have to say something. You're going to have to stand up, sit down, kneel, stand up, say something, sing, respond. All of that's not just for the choir and the clergy anymore. It's for you. You're to participate in it. But in that simplification process, sometimes it got, uh, some clergy thought, this is getting too simple. We've actually thrown out a bunch of things. Let's see if we can't put some of those things back and keep the service so that it's understandable. Um, there's always been a tension since the 19th century, at least, in the Anglican Church, about how much can you put back without confusing everybody. Uh, and here we are today. If you went to another APA church, if you went to our synod, the Synod Eucharist, I would say you would have seen some things you've never seen before. But this is our bishop and his, uh, the highest mass that we can possibly do. You've seen some things you've never seen before done in a liturgical service in the APA, a prayer book, prayer book or reformed Catholic movement such as ours. Um, that's where this stuff comes from. The missiles allow clergy to observe feast days, liturgical elements, and rituals left out of the prayer book from the 16th century. Uh, so that may cause controversy with some or great relief and excitement with others. Typically, the answer, which one happens? The answer is yes. <laughs> Anytime you put something new in, one person is thrilled that finally we're doing incense again. Another person says, I've searched my prayer book front to back. I don't see incense in there anywhere. One person, uh, when you get up and you say the, uh, uh, the centurion's prayer, they say, that's not prayer book Catholicism. It's not in the prayer book. Another person says, finally, we're joining the rest of the Christian faith by saying the centurion's prayer. The tension. Every clergyman has to sort of find out where the landmines are and walk this tightrope through. Um, that's, but that's where it comes from, is the missile tradition. Any questions about that before I go to my misspelled uh, slide here? Any questions about communion? Um, anyhow, uh, any questions about the missiles? That's, a, that's sort of a big topic. Uh, there's a, a, a tension there. Yes? I, I remember reading oh. that in, in, in England, mm-hmm. before Henry would go throughout England, England itself, you would find all kinds of different ways that they were doing right. From English to Latin to, I mean, it was just a, and I guess it wasn't enforced, I'm assuming, because Rome was so far away or something. Right. But so it's almost the same way. But there, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, we were returning, we're returning to that in a sense. Because the, you had the, Sal, the Sarum Rite, Salisbury Rite, and then you had York, which was not that far away, but was a different rite. And I'm sure, if I, maybe you can help me, Father, there, I believe there's a, there was a, a, up further north, there was a more Celtic rite. And uh, the idea was, why don't we get this whole country praying the exact same thing at the exact same time, exact same way? Uh, and that, that's, that's a tension that's always existed in Anglicanism since. Uh, and, uh, and some will say, well, the more you add elements, the less common the prayer is. And others will say, the more you simplify, the less expression we're able to have. Uh, and so you, you'll notice in, in the Book of Common Prayer, the only saints' days and feast days that are, that are observed are those of saints that and events that occur and are referenceable in the scriptures. 
St. Augustine may have been a greater and more important saint than St. Bartholomew, but he's not in the New Testament. So he's not in the prayer book. And the Roman tradition doesn't know anything about that. So it's St. Augustine, St. Augustine, St. Augustine. And some of our churches say, you know what? What does it hurt to observe the Feast of St. Augustine? The tension is, do you put the Feast of St. Augustine, does he trump Trinity 12 or wherever his feast day is? So every clergyman has to sort of discern this uh, himself, and the bishop has to say, uh, has to give a rule. You generally have to ask permission if you're going to do something weird. (laughs) I try not to do anything weird here, but nevertheless, um, if you you can, the key is that if if the parish trusts the priest, they'll realize the priest is not trying to hurt. He's trying to feed. And sometimes feeding you just the one piece of grain over and over and over again, you'll be nourished, but there's more. Could you handle more? What if I gave you a little bit more? Um, that's the tension that's always existed. But as we, as we look at the liturgy itself, there are, most people recognize, and most churches that have some structure of, to their worship service will recognize there are two parts of the historic Holy Communion service. Uh, you can call it different things, but some call it word and sacrament, or liturgy of the catechumen, which is an ancient way of saying it, and the faithful, which is an ancient way of saying it. And there's a divide in the middle. Our church service, even in the bulletin, you can see there's two parts to this service. Um, From the earliest church services, that division allowed for all to participate in at least half of Christian worship. This is the floor plan for the earliest Christian uh, house church, where um, the assembly hall is here, the courtyard is here. And so people would come into the portico, and before the service started, they'd be in the courtyard. The service would start, the liturgy of the word would happen in the assembly hall. And then when it switched from word to sacrament, the catechumens were excused. The, uh, I think Justin Martyr says, the demon-possessed were excused. Those who had been excommunicated were excused. And the, the liturgy of the faithful or commu- Holy Communion would take place after that, uh, the sacrament itself. The Liturgy of the Word, though, uh, in our own service begins, you could say with the processional hymn or the opening sentence, but really in its essence, the colic for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. That prayer sets the tone for the rest of the service, especially the Liturgy of the Word, uh, well, no, the whole, the whole service. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may perfectly love thee by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We may perfectly love thee. You will not perfectly love the Lord unless he intervenes. And you're asking, please, God, intervene because the thoughts of my heart are a mess. Uh, by the inspiration, the breathing in of your Holy Spirit, cleanse the thoughts of my heart that I'm, of my heart, that I may worship perfectly and love you perfectly. The colic for purity, also known as the scary prayer. And we'll get to this uh, word by word eventually. The scary prayer, because all hearts are known, open, all desires known, no secrets are hid. You can play game with the rest of us. We don't know who you are and what you're really thinking. And you got us all fooled. God is not impressed. <laughs> he's, got, he's got you down. Uh, it's followed by the law or the summary of the law, 
and the Curie. We'll hear a little bit about that today uh, in the sermon, if you haven't heard the sermon already today. Uh, you hear the law, the summary of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the appropriate response, Lord, have mercy upon us. Because if after hearing the law or the summary of the law, you say, oh, all these I have kept since my youth. Come on. <laughs> Give me strength. You're going to need a curie, a liaison after that. Followed uh, in the fi- before the 1552, the Gloria, the 1549, the original, the Gloria would have followed right there. And Father Suter and I were talking about this last week or a couple weeks ago, how in our church today, in the APA, you'll find the Gloria in different places. Some priests have put it back to the front where it originally was. Others continue with the prayer book tradition that started after 1552 and onward of putting the Gloria at the end. You'll find some missiles will put the Gloria up front and some will put it at the back. Some missiles will have both versions. So what's a clergyman to do? Uh, well, that's a good question. But the liturgy of the word continues with the collects and the scriptures and the creed. You're, you're hearing words. You're hearing the word of God. Um, you're reciting the creed together. And then you sit and you hear a sermon, the word expounded to you. And there is an offering, which is our response for the whole state of Christ's church. And you'll notice how right at that dividing spot, you, in your response to the Lord giving you his word, you offer of yourself to him for the whole state of Christ's church. That's, by whole, we don't mean the entire. We mean the healthy state of Christ's church. You've got to have the power bill paid. You've got to have the water bill paid. You've got to you know, take care of all the, the costs you're... you're you've received from the church so far, you offer of yourself. Um, There was a time in the history of the church where at this point you would offer the bread and the wine because your possessions were bread from your field and wine from your vineyard. Um, That doesn't make any sense anymore because when you go to work now, you get paid. You don't get a bushel of barley or something like that. You get paid money. So what you do is you Give for the whole state of Christ's church at the, uh, at the end of the, the service of the word. Here we have the widow's might, and you know why she gave that. She gave that for the whole state of the body of, not the body of Christ at the time, but the people of God. And she gave joyfully of everything that she had, knowing that this was worth it. Of all the things I could spend this, this, uh, th- these two mites on, this is the best. Uh, the liturgy of the sacrament begins, uh, and it has three key elements, and you sort of can group these together. One is the preparation of the altar and the offertory. So uh, the Lord has spoken to us, and we are now preparing the altar and offering it to him. In time, he will offer it back to us. But the preparation of the altar and the offertory is taking place while the choir is singing and while the offering is going, uh, the offering plates are going about the church. Um, and the whole act of offering ourselves, our souls, and our bodies is what follows. Because we have a prayer for the whole state of Christ's church. 
And then we have our own confession and our own absolution. We're getting ready to offer ourselves, our souls and our bodies to him. And we want to do it in as pure and, and uh, holy a way as we can. So we ask for forgiveness. We receive absolution. And then we offer what's called the sursum corda, which means hearts lifted high. But we say, uh, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. This is the best thing we can offer. We, we offered uh, our, our money. We've offered our confession. We've received absolution. And now we offer our hearts in the best condition. Unless you've committed a sin between the confession and the sursum corda, which you've got to try to sin between the one and the other, you're offering the best. You're lifting up your heart to God as, a, as a, an offertory of yourself. There's a preface then. And the sanctus, the bell is, writ, is rung, holy, holy, holy. The preface, by the way, is, uh, uh, it's hard for me to jump into the middle of liturgy, but um, um, I can't remember how it goes. I have to do, Lord be with you and with the Spirit. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Uh, it is meet and right so to do. It is very meet right, there you go, it is very meet right and, and our bounden duty that we should have always that's the that's the preface sometimes there's a proper there's a there's a uh, a seasonal preface prior to that uh, and the sanctus is wrong holy 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 lord god almighty and we're beginning then the consecration of the elements the canon this is the second element of this liturgy of the sacrament the canon um of consecration almighty god um of course, I don't have a prayer book right in front of me, but that, that is the element where we recite both the words of institution, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, uh, and it, there is also an epiclesis, calling down of the Holy Spirit in the canon. Uh, and we end the, the consecration of the elements with the great Amen. And we in our church, we sing... Amen, Amen, Amen. But some churches say, Amen. The end. We sing it in our church. We sing it in a unique way, I think. But I like it. It's pretty good. Other churches have different versions of the great Amen. That's the end of the canon. And what happens following this, roughly speaking, is the administration of the sacrament. Um, Roughly speaking. And then following the administration of the sacrament is a thanksgiving, a gloria in our church, and a benediction, a final blessing, and depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. That's the liturgy of the sacrament. These are the, the uh, essential elements of Holy Communion in word and in sacrament, two, two portions of, of our service. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens, because next week we're going to start with the liturgy proper. Uh, the call it for purity. But I have to point out to you that there's some stuff that happens before the beginning, okay? Uh, you may slide into church at 10.59 and park yourself in a pew and the liturgy begins. But there's a bunch of stuff that happened that you just missed. Before the beginning, before anything happens, the worship has already begun and you actually are, are already participating in it. But the altar guild has prayerfully set the altar probably the day before, usually, unless it's uh, between services. 
but they've already prayerfully set the altar. It's ready for what's to come. Um, I will say uh, before the altar guild prayerfully sets, or after the altar guild prayerfully sets the altar, your alarm clock will ring and you will get up and we will all get up for the same purpose. The same purpose of coming together in worship. And there used to be a church bell that would ring saying, you got a half an hour. And, you know, bong, bong. And if you lived in a little English hamlet, you'd listen to that bell and you'd say, oh, it's Sunday. You know, I, let's get all of our stuff together. That's part of the worship is you all gathering together. Every other day we, when, we, when we wake up in the morning, we gather or we, we awake for different purposes. You've got to go to work. You've got to go fishing. You've got to fix the roof. You've got to do the whatever. Um, this is a day when we all awake and we have the same thing on our mind. We all come together for the same thing. So the worship has begun corporately already. But before, if you slide in at 1159, the priests, the altar servers, the choir have already prayed in preparation. There are vesting prayers um, for the clergy. Uh, we pray the confidier, which is a form of liturgy that the acolytes and the clergy will know about. We pray in that little blue room. In preparation, it's, it's in essence an, a confession prior to the confession. Uh, if you've ever heard someone say, um, Max, uh, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, that's from the confidier prayer. By my own fault, by my fault, by my own fault, by my own grievous fault. It's a confession uh, that we pray in preparation before we do anything at the altar. Uh, in the choir, we pray together as well. Before we ever get up to the altar, our Anglican brethren in Asia have been praying for us before we ever get up. You ever thought of that? Uh, our church in the Philippines prays for us. So already this morning, before we get to the altar, Father Joel, Father Alex, and all those churches in the Philippines and in India have been praying for us. That's already taken place before you sat in your pew. The laity awake. They arrive early to pray silently in recollection. Um, and I'll say there is a, there is a, there's a clash of traditions here because in, you know, we didn't all grow up in an English hamlet uh, uh, answering the church bell in the morning. And, and for some of us in, in the traditions that we were raised in, I would say many Protestant traditions consider boisterous conversation and distraction just prior to a service to be a sign of life and parish vitality. And I remember being in churches where if the, pa- the more the pastor had to quiet everyone down, and some of you are nodding your heads, you know this, and other people are like, what are you talking about? The more the pastor has to quiet down the raucous conversation, the healthier the church is, you know? If I could just get these people to stop loving on each other, we could start worship. Good morning. I said good morning. You've heard that before, right? That's a sign of vitality and life in a church of that type. We ain't that. <laughs> You'll notice when you walk in that door and you say, hey, guys, how about that game? game? Oh, you know, everybody's quiet in this room. Uh, in fact, if you show it up at 1059, there's a chance people got there at 1049 and have been praying in silence up until 1059. It's been an important part of their worship, an important part of that week. Uh, for some people, there's only one quiet place in the whole world, and it's that room. And there's only 10 minutes where I get to just 
pray and prepare myself. Recollection means, you might guess, gather yourself. Gather yourself for a minute, which is why I need to stop teaching this class and give people a chance to gather themselves. But uh, sacramental traditions typically value quiet and prayerful preparation as essential to the service. These are things that are happening before the service starts. So um, that's a, let's see if I've got one more little word there. Loud and busy conversation is a difficult habit for converts to break. If you're new to the Anglican Church, sometimes you think, boy, these people are uptight. I'm going to loosen things up. You know, I'm going to talk uh, real loud and get that football uh, game talked about. That's what the parish hall is for. Okay, the parish hall is for all of that. And uh, some people will say, you talk to God, God talks to you, then you talk to each other. So you talk to God means, means you show up early to service and you have a moment to pray and recollect yourself. He speaks to you in the liturgy of the word and the sacrament. And we speak to each other forever in the coffee hour afterwards. And I wish the acoustics in here were less echoey because it can get real loud in here. But that's, to me, a sign of a healthy church is people that will, are willing to stick around and talk to each other rather than bolt, get right to the car. Uh, you know, some, some churches where people are in their car before the end of the service. Uh, there's some, lit, some sacramental liturgical churches, they give some sort of uh, allowance for people as soon as they receive communion to head to the parking lot and leave. Don't let me see you doing that. <laughs> I'll get you good for that. No, that's, oh, that's, that's not good. Uh, it's a very individualistic way of looking at of being a part of the body of Christ. Uh, we're worshiping corporately. We're receiving the sacrament corporately. And you should probably show your face and talk to a couple people afterwards. Not everybody, just a couple people. Uh, corporately afterwards. Because... Uh, that's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. That's what I've got for today. We've, next week, we're going to start right in with the Collect for Purity and the Liturgy Proper. Um, and there's no time for questions, so lucky me. But is, does anybody have anything uh, they want to say or questions? Going once, going twice. Thank you. All right.